This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, this is Dan Sang with Subversity. Uh, today we're going to be remembering the, lives, the life of uh, the activist life of uh, Barbara Giddings, of uh, early uh, gay liberationists uh, who sought to change the way society looked at gay people primarily by um, getting books into libraries. Uh, this was a time when gay people were considered uh, perverts, sexual perverts, um, and uh, thought to be uh, messed up psychologically. Uh, and she was an early pioneer uh, who picketed the White House, who edited a lesbian journal, uh, The Ladder, uh, back in the 1960s, and who also um, headed uh, a few years, a year or so after it had founded, the, the Task Force for Gay Liberation, uh, which was a part of the American Library Association, ALA, uh, Social Responsibilities Roundtable, CERT, S-R-R-T. Uh, it was in that capacity that I met her, and I even uh, wrote an article with her, I believe, and uh, so I was quite shocked to hear that she had died, to read that she had died, uh, last uh, died on Sunday last week uh, because I had just uh, been on a panel with her uh, three months earlier at UCLA during a symposium put on by the um, Library and Archives Outreach uh, Group, which is uh, the gay students at uh, UCLA's library school. And so today we're going to remember her by looking at some of her um, commentary and also airing her commentary, uh, which she last did at this UCLA symposium. A few months before that, she had also spoken at a gay archive meeting, lesbian gay archive, uh, the first one uh, nationally uh, in Minnesota, where she also was a keynote speaker. So today we're going to be airing um, her talk uh, when she, she talks about the beginning of this, uh, her activism in the um, American Library Association to get lesbian and gay books into libraries. Uh, she calls it the gay rights movement, but at the time we called it the gay liberation movement. And so let's hear what she, Barbara Giddings, uh, who died on Sunday at age 75 in Pennsylvania, has to say, or had to say, at this uh, meeting in, uh, at UCLA on November 17, 2006. on the West Coast with the formation of two organizations, one incorporated in LA and the Manichaean Society in San Francisco. Then in 1955, the Daughters of Belitis, a lesbian organization in San Francisco. Now they were small and their members were afraid sometimes they could be arrested just for getting together to talk about the taboo topic of homosexuality. But they persisted and gained courage. For a few years, the big three, as we call them, had chapters in other cities. Then new groups started up here and there. By the time of our first national meeting in 1966, there were 20 organizations in the United States. Our three pioneer groups published magazines, a necessary step in pushing social change. 
Gay men and lesbians were almost completely invisible then. How do you reach an invisible people to spur them to tackle their problems? The gay and lesbian magazines couldn't be sold anywhere. Here's a sample of them. And there were few subscribers because most people were afraid to have their names on any kind of gay list. But subscription copies got passed around, so three or four readers would get to see each issue. This is 1959. This is the Mattachine Review from the Mattachine Society. I like this uh, title here, The Homosexual Swish. Does he deserve the scorn that society heaps upon him? <laughs> and these are early issues of the latter, the magazine of the Daughters of Believers. Now remember, this basic organizing began while the country was in the grip of Senator McCarthy's witch hunts when communists and liberals and homosexuals were all lumped together as subversives who threatened national security. Here is our lovely friend, McCarthy, and his sidekick, Roy Cohn. Right. Remember them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, accusations of being commie, pinko, queer could and did ruin the lives and careers of many decent people. Thanks again, Senator McCarthy. Bye-bye. <laughs> Our movement grew slowly, but in the turbulent 1960s, with civil rights groups and anti-Vietnam War groups and women's groups making public protests, homosexuals and their allies also took to the streets. From 1964 to 1969, we had picket demonstrations at government locations in Washington and New York, and at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. I still have the dress. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an archival item? Yes, <laughs> yes. All right. This one's at Independence Hall. Oh, well, you can't see it very well. I wish I could get this crisper. Sorry, this is the best we can get out of this machine. This one's in front of the Civil Service Commission building in Washington. And to notice the second person in line is Reverend Robert Wood, who wrote an early book called Christ and the Homosexual, calling for understanding by the church. The first book to do that in a positive way. Lily Vincennes at the head of the picket line. She's a great gay activist. Now, these very visible protests led, here's another. These very visible protests led into the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York when gays on the East Coast fought back after a routine police raid on a gay bar. The Stonewall riots have been incorrectly called the beginning of the gay lesbian rights movement in this country, but that mistake is being cleared up. Stonewall was instead a flashpoint when our movement's 20 years of solid groundwork suddenly blossomed into hundreds of organizations with thousands of activist participants. Now where was I 
during the early years of our budding gay rights crusade. Well, I was reading about homosexuality. When I finally put the label homosexual on myself during my freshman year in college in 1949, there was still a near total silence on the subject. There was no one I could ask. Now, I'd been raised with books at home, so I naturally turned to libraries to learn what homosexuality meant, what my life would be like, and especially where to find others. I was so desperate for information, I didn't even mind having to search under sexual perversion and abnormal psychology. What meager material I found ranged from dismal to dreadful. It was mostly case histories of sad people made to seem even more miserable by being scrutinized as specimens. There was little warmth or humanness, but I was desperate, so I devoured all that libraries had to offer. Even today, many gays trying to understand themselves make tracks to the stacks, especially to have privacy. Eventually, I stumbled onto homosexual fiction, novels such as The Well of Loneliness, Extraordinary Women, Diana, and Torchlight to Valhalla. Oh, what a difference. The novels and short stories almost all had agony endings, yet their homosexual characters had love and happiness in their story lives, and they made me feel much better about myself. For years, I haunted secondhand bookstores as well as libraries, turning up gay novels and a few positive nonfiction books so that I could read about my people. And I also found that I love books altogether. I love the look of them and the feel of them and the smell of them. And I love the power they have to transform lives as they did mine. One of those helpful nonfiction books was The Homosexual in America by Donald Webster Corey, published in 1951. It was the first American book to proclaim the radical idea that gay people are a legitimate minority group and should demand full civil rights. But what grabbed me was the extensive bibliography in the back of the book, a guide to more stuff I could read. <laughs> I arranged to meet the author to talk about his book list. He told me about the fledgling gay organizations on the West Coast. I was intrigued and went out to visit them in 1956. And I officially became a gay activist in 1958 when Daughters of Belitis asked me to start its first East Coast chapter in New York City. I was living in Philadelphia and I would take the bus up to New York every weekend or every other weekend to do chapter activities. In the next 12 years, I picketed for gay rights, I gave lectures and workshops, I battled homophobic bureaucrats, I appeared on radio and TV, and I edited DOB's national magazine, The Ladder, upgrading from line drawings like these to photo covers, eventually to photo covers, artworks, and finally, photo covers of real lesbians. <laughs> now this was a victory over the pervasive invisibility of the time. Now, busy as I was promoting gay visibility and agitating for our equality, I nonetheless kept an eye on the emerging literature, which began to show us as wholesome, happy, and healthy human beings. 
1970, while I was reporting gay news on a pioneer gay radio show at WBAI-FM in New York City, and I think that's aligned with the one in uh, San Francisco. What's your, uh, uh, your PBS uh, radio station? Uh, no. It wasn't that. Pacifica. 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 It, it was part of a small chain. WBAI-FM was part of a small chain. But WBAI-FM in New York had started this gay radio news show. And I learned that a handful of librarians had started a gay group in the American Library Association. Gay books? Libraries? The bells rang for me. <laughs> the group welcomed me. I'm, a non, I'm not a librarian. The group welcomed me at its between conference meetings, which were mostly in New York City at the time. Now, they didn't need professional librarian skills so much as activists to get the group launched. I had found a special home in our movement. I was hooked. At my own expense, I began going to ALA annual and midwinter conferences so that I could combat the lies in the libraries. The group, first called Task Force on Gay Liberation, later Gay Task Force, was founded by Israel Fishman at the 1970 ALA conference. In my booklet, Gays in Library Land, a history of the GTF's first 16 years, I name a woman librarian, Janet Cooper, as co-founder. But I was mistaken, and both Israel and Janet have since corrected the record. Janet was, however, among the most active movers and shakers in that first year. The GTF has the special distinction of being the first gay caucus in a professional association. It formed as a subgroup of the Social Responsibilities Roundtable, SRRT, called CERT for short, which itself had started only a year earlier as an activist wing of ALA. CERT was parent to many offspring, us and other task forces dealing with social issues in the library field. Through CERT, we got legitimacy in ALA and a tiny share of CERT's very small money pie. We didn't need much money at first. We had imagination. We were full of fun and energy and love for our cause. It was a very heady time. Like most startup social change groups, our GTF was ambitious. In particular, the group wanted to produce a comprehensive, annotated bibliography of all nonfiction materials in English on homosexuality. Even in the 1970s, that would be a daunting job. Tracking so much negative material about us? writing annotations to boot. Meanwhile, the group needed a list of the least negative items readily available to distribute at Midwinter Conference in January 1971, and I helped to prepare it. That first edition of our gay bibliography was easy. It had just 37 items. But in the wake of our Stonewall uprising, publishers saw a new market for writings about gay life and our movement and the first major crop of books by openly gay authors about the gay experience was in the pipeline. Gay literature had come out of the closet. Here is the fifth edition of a gay bibliography. So this is the first edition of the gay bibliography. The first side, the other side, was also printed. It wasn't called gay bibliography. It was called Brief List of Materials on Homosexuality. But it was really our first edition. Now, the 1975 
fifth edition looked like this. And our last edition in June 1980 had 563 items, including periodicals and audiovisuals. I sent a box of copies of this edition for as mementos, for handout as mementos at this conference, but the box has been lost. Now that that was a huge increase from the 37 items on our first list. We distributed over 37,000 copies of the 1980 edition over the next few years. It was intended both as a buying guide for libraries and a resource for gay people searching for the sparse material then available in libraries and bookstores. The effort and cost of that bibliography deterred us from another revision, but we did plan a periodical supplement. We have a draft of a periodical supplement. The following year, which would have listed at least 27 new magazines or newsletters. Remember I said earlier that publications were vital to our movement to enable people to reach each other and to work in common cause. An increase of almost 15% in gay periodicals in one year was a testament to vigorous growth. Now reading lists were unnatural for a librarian's social change group. In addition to the main bibliography, we produced lists of Gay Resources for Religious Study, Gay Aids for Counselors, <coughs> Gay Materials for Use in Schools, and a short lesbian reading list, which prompted some people to say, uh, is it for tall lesbians too? <laughs> Also, we launched a list of gay materials in format for the blind and physically handicapped and soon turned it over to an organization specializing in services for blind gays. We did list several annual, we did several annual editions of gay materials core collection list for use by small and medium-sized public libraries. The chief collection development tool at the time, H.W. Wilson's Public Library Catalog, recommended only two books on homosexuality in 1976, on being different and the anti-gay growing up straight. Our efforts to work directly with Wilson's editors got tangled up in their complicated national jury system for selection. So we tried with our core collection list to make up for the inadequacy of Wilson's list, which continued for years to lag behind publishing trends in its choice of gay titles. How do libraries decide what gay books to buy? A committee headed by Stuart W. Miller wrote a booklet for gay people, lay people rather, lay people, which explained library selection policies in a general way and told what gay groups and individuals could do to promote gay books and periodicals in their public and college libraries. It included sections on what to do if your request is turned down, on donating, and on why gay materials are sometimes kept where you have to ask for them. It was a good idea, but it was not a bestseller. <laughs> Occasionally, we prepared special request lists. For example, an aide to a legislator in a Midwestern state said to us, I want to educate my boss and his colleagues about homosexuality, but if I hand them a long list, 
they'll get turned off and they won't read anything. Please recommend just a half dozen items. We did that. And once a librarian at a men's prison told us some inmates wanted to read gay materials without risking being targeted. Could we make up a list of gay male books that didn't show the words gay or homosexual on the covers? We did. It was tough, but we did it. There was one challenge we obviously could not meet. Now and then we'd get the request, please send all available material on homosexuality by term papers due next week. <laughs> <laughs> now reading guides might seem tame stuff, yet a list from us could be unsettling. At first, when we handed out our gay bibliography at ALA conferences, librarians eagerly took copies. But reaction set in in 1972 when we put a gay is good button, a logo, at the head of the second edition. Many librarians spotted the logo at a glance and brushed aside our handout saying, oh, we already have all that stuff. We didn't believe it. <laughs> we persisted. After all, we were activists. ALA's 1971 conference in Dallas gave our GTF its first major stage for action. Early in the conference week, we decided on our first Gay Book Award to Patience and Sarah. Can you see anything? I had a To Patience and Sarah by Alma Routsong, writing as Isabel Miller. CERT, our parent division in ALA, found dollars to fly the author into Dallas to accept the award two days later. At first, no one would publish her book, so in 1970, she had copies printed at her own expense, and she lugged them around to New York bookstores in a big shopping bag. After she received the Gay Book Award, McGraw-Hill, which had earlier turned her down, published the book in hardcover, and later it went to paperback reprints. And here is a picture of the award. We had a pair of talks on sex and the single cataloger, new thoughts on some unthinkable subjects, <laughs> about the, the out-of-date ways that gay materials were classified. Our speakers, Steve Wolf, Steve Wolf and Joan Marshall, declared that 15 million gay men and women in this country refuse to be called sexual aberrations. <laughs> Librarian Michael McConnell told about his job discrimination case, which he, was which he was pursuing both in federal courts and within ALA. He had been hired, then unhired, when the university learned he expected to be open about being a gay activist. We took over the microphones at a meeting of the Intellectual Freedom Committee whose huge audience was playing games around fictitious values, quote unquote. We told them about a real-life test of intellectual freedom, McConnell's case, which was being given the ho-hum treatment by IFC itself. We got a key resolution passed by both council and membership. It noted that some minorities are not ethnic in nature, 
and it condemned discrimination in employment and services on any grounds, whether, quote, ethnic, sexual, religious, or any other kind, unquote. Oddly enough, this inclusive statement later vanished from ALA's policy manual, although a pro-gay resolution with much narrower language that passed in later years was still cited. We were tackling topics that should have tweaked librarians' professional interests, a book award, reading buying guides on an unpopular subject, job discrimination, and a call for cataloging changes. Yet, few people beyond our small circle came to our meetings. We needed big publicity. Israel Fishman, the GTF's founder and first leader, found a way. At the 1971 conference in Dallas, each task force was allotted two hours in CERT's booth in the exhibit hall. Now, we could have used our turn for a nice display of gay book jackets and our bibliography. But Israel said, let's show gay love live. So we had the first gay kissing booth. It was called Hug a Homosexual. We stripped the booth down to the bare gray curtains and we put up signs, men only at one end and women only at the other. We stationed ourselves, all four of us, under the appropriate signs, ready to dispense free, mind you, free, same-sex <laughs> Now let me tell you, the aisles were jammed with curious librarians and exhibitors. But no one came into the booth. They all wanted to ogle but not take part. So, was it too public even for a moment of fun? It certainly was public. A Life magazine photographer and two Dallas television crews were recording. So we showed them how it's done. <laughs> we kissed and hugged each other. We encouraged the onlookers to try it. And we handed out copies of our bibliography. And we kissed and hugged some more. <laughs> the kissing booth got us noticed. We were featured on TV news twice that evening and again the next morning, along with a librarian who said, I don't know why those people are getting all the publicity when we have so many famous authors in the town. <laughs> Reaction to Hug a Homosexual continued for months in the library press. I remember one letter in particular that appeared in American libraries. The writer started off reasonably enough complaining that women in the library field usually get the lower level jobs and lower salaries. She went on to tie this in with those effeminate men, her words, who became librarians because they couldn't make it in the rough and tumble masculine world. <laughs> then her letter got wilder. Toward the end, she seemed to be accusing gay librarians of wanting the freedom to have sex in the stacks, not only that, but to do it on library time. <laughs> she got it wrong, but at least we got to her. Our kissing booth made the point that gay men and lesbians shouldn't be held to a double standard of sexual privacy, that we're entitled to be just as open as non-gays in expressing our affection, not more, but not less. Israel Fishman wanted to step down as leader of the GTF, and I was informally chosen to be coordinator. I joined ALA. ALA has many non-librarian members, so that I could handle the necessary working food channels for the group. 
We carried our triumph into the 1972 conference in Chicago. Here again, we featured Day in Love. Readings from Gertrude Stein, Constantine Kavafi, Sappho, and Walt Whitman to remind our audience that these writers whose works they value on library shelves had a homosexual dimension to their lives and their art. In our hospitality suite at the Palmer House, we had on display artworks by famous artists such as Auguste Rodin. Oh boy, I didn't see much of that. Um, can you see enough? Yeah. <clears throat> David Hockney. Winslow Homer. And Earhart Marx. The suite was open 12 hours a day during the conference, thanks to a Chicago volunteer who was a steward for a major airline. He'd come in every morning, set up coffee and pastries, arrange flowers he brought, and welcome visitors. The visitors streamed in. Even the wife of ALA's then president came to look us over. Our work over the years was possible, really, because of outsiders. There were non-librarians besides me who were core activists with GTF. About half of the people in this particular group are not librarians. Yet many more people in host cities gladly did one-shot jobs for us. We needed publicity, humor, theater, and practical help ranging from home hospitality for guest speakers and day book award winners to leafleting at conference. The GTF gladly took in anyone who could offer us help. We were very open and informal. Having lay people not only brought extra talent and energy to the GTF, it was also good for ALA's image. Most professional associations seem remote, authoritarian, sometimes even inimical to outsiders. Yet at ALA, year after year, gay people not in the profession found themselves happily rubbing elbows with librarians. In Chicago in 1972, Michael McConnell gave us an update on his job discrimination case. It wasn't succeeding in the courts and in ALA, it was being bumped from one committee to another. By 1975, it was simply swept under the rug despite our pressure. I think in today's climate of opinion, there would be a different outcome. Joan Marshall also brought us up to date on the queer ways that gay books are classified. Now there was a positive change. The Library of Congress had assigned a new number, HQ 76.5, for works on gay liberation movement. And we had the second Gay Book Award given jointly to Peter Fisher for The Gay Mystique and to Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon for Lesbian Woman. It was at the 1974 conference in New York that we first used flyers widely posted and distributed to publicize our activities. This first leaflet is fairly crude, later we approved.
One of our key members, John Cunningham, was not comfortable wading into a crowd with leaflets. So he found a way to cover territory and keep a low profile. He'd go well ahead of time into a room set up for a big meeting, and he would put one of our flyers not on every chair, but on every second or third chair. This was economical and effective. People would come in and say, oh, I didn't get one of those. May I see yours? <laughs> There's a story also about one of the playlets put on for us in New York by the Oscar Wilde Memorial Players. I had asked the conference hotel to supply a bed needed for the stage. The word got around the hotel staff that a bed was being set up in the room where the gay group was meeting. <laughs> when I stood at the podium to introduce the actors, I could see all the entrance doors at the back of the ballroom. They were supposed to be closed, but they were all cracked open and lots of beady eyes were peering in. I'm afraid their owners were disappointed. The actors just sat on the bed and talked. Perhaps our most entertaining program was in 1975 when a panel took up the problem of negative gay themes in teenage novels called The Children's Hour, Must Gay Be Grim for Jane and Jim. <laughs> Most of the handful of gay-themed young adult novels then in print had unhappy endings with gayness published, punished by serious injury or death, usually by car crash. The panelists read summaries of the novel's plots and held up big signs saying, death and car crash at the right moments in the storytelling. <laughs> Toward the end, as each narrative reached its melodramatic peak, people in the audience actually leaped up and shouted, don't get in the car, don't get in the car. <laughs> now that program had big consequences. Its major architects, Francis Hankel and John Cunningham, wrote an article, Can Young Gays Find Happiness in YA Books? for Wilson Library Bulletin, which was reprinted as a pamphlet. It included guidelines for publishers and librarians. Later, John and Francis collaborated on a trade book published in 1979, A Way of Love, A Way of Life, a young person's introduction to what it means to be gay. This was the first book by gay authors about the gay life written for a general teenage audience. And it was one of many gay-positive books that became targets of censorship. An unusual case was in Fairbanks, Alaska in 1984. A Way of Love, A Way of Life was in two high schools in the district. The censor group was foiled in trying to remove the book itself, so it went after the three school board members who had voted to keep the book. There was a petition to recall the three school board members on grounds of, quote, incompetence, unquote. Now here was a new twist in censorship at that time. If you can't get rid of the book, get rid of the people who okayed the book. But the North Star Borough Attorney gave a legal opinion that incompetence meant you literally couldn't function on the job, not that you made an unpopular decision. The censor group vowed to keep fighting. I don't have information on the outcome. So many bases to cover. We had programs on gay periodicals, gay materials in small towns, gay publishing in the Library of Congress, gay archives, 
This was 1983 here in Los Angeles. Featuring Jim Kepner, whose only publicity picture was a little tiny picture, which is there. That's all we got out of it. And Judith Schwartz, who was then with the Lesbian History Archive. And we had Leroy Dysart, the troubadour as archivist. He sang songs for us. And we had a, let's see, gay materials in schools. And the first ever gay film festival here, 1978, was put on by the ALA Gay Group. This included, by the way, the hit film of 1970, Word is Out, a rich tapestry of the gay experience, the hardships, the happiness. Our 1981 program at ALA on gay themes in science fiction was called It's Safer to be Gay on Another Planet. <laughs> we were fortunate to get the famous science fiction writer Robert Silverberg to be moderator. He wanted us to make it clear to the audience that he himself is not gay. So we made up a button especially for him. <laughs> He loved it and wore it proudly. <laughs> Did we have failures? Of course. Our minor, one minor fizzle, one minor fizzle was our 1978 survey to find out whether and how gay and lesbian librarians experienced discrimination and or censorship on the job. We saturated the conference with our questionnaire. There were so many copies everywhere, no one could feel singled out by having one. But out of several thousand survey forms distributed, only 175 were returned. Most of them reported no pressures, either overt or subtle, affecting themselves or gay materials. We felt that this picture of no problems in my library was skewed, but we had no way to check it. A major fiasco was a program on AIDS awareness, the library's role which we co-sponsored in 1986. Now remember the date, 86. It was an excellent presentation by the AIDS Information Project of the Chicago Public Library in cooperation with the Chicago Department of Health. And both groups brought large quantities of useful materials. Also, the program was co-sponsored by ALA's Public Library Association and widely advertised in ALA. Yet only 35 people showed up almost all core members of the Bay Task Force. Dan, do you remember that? That small turnout? Mm -hmm. Where were all the librarians who needed that information as the AIDS epidemic was peaking? Librarians, as well as lay people, still shunned the subject. Later in 1986, I retired from GTF, and my last act as head of the group was to announce that our Gay Book Award was now an official award of ALA. In the early years, we decided our award by consensus. We just sat around and discussed books until we agreed on a winner. That got harder as gay literature grew in quantity and quality. Eventually, we had a committee work out formal rules and procedures for the Gay Book Award that also met ALA standards. The gay group itself eventually graduated in status to a full-fledged roundtable. The name changed again. It's now the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Roundtable. The Gay Book Award has become two awards, the Israel Fishman Book Award for Nonfiction and the Barbara Gittings Book Award for Literature. 
and the winning authors get a little money. I think we had more fun when we didn't have money. <laughs> we had to devise low-cost low tokens of symbolic interest. For example, hand-lettered scrolls, a lavender commencement cap, mounted copies of gay artworks, a butterfly kite, a movie poster. These all were imaginative tokens that we could give the Gable Award author, but didn't cost very much. It really is gay visibility more than positive books by us and about us that gets people stirred up. Consider ALA's 1992 conference. The gay group marched in San Francisco's Gay Pride Parade with a banner. American libraries printed a picture of the gay librarian's contingent on the cover of the July-August issue. Reaction both pro and con appeared in the next three issues of American libraries. Some of the objections, quote, I was very displeased. As a matter of fact, I wanted to puke. <laughs> Strange sexual behavior does not play well in rural Kansas. I have already been called on the carpet by library board members who feel ALA is a lunatic fringe association. <laughs> and such displays of antisocial behavior on the cover of AL just strengthen their cause. Quote, I'd like to see the library profession cease its endless advocacy of social issues and return to the difficult issues of operating information agencies, formerly known as libraries, in an age of sound bites and media pieces. Doesn't that get you? <laughs> information agency? That's what you are. Quote, the gay and lesbian issue has nothing whatsoever to do with the library profession. And the library profession should have absolutely nothing to do with it and them. Most people will not take seriously the ranting and yapping of angry, misguided library professionals who insist on, some, on supporting some irrelevant cause. Quote, homosexuality is wrong, W-R-O-N-G. It is against God's laws and if not repented of, leads to unhappiness, misery, and destruction. Quote, I was shocked. Please remove my name from your subscription list. I wouldn't want to be associated with the people you put on your magazine cover. Quote, I am disgusted, appalled, and nauseated to see my professional association supporting a sexually perverse movement. And this comment from a man who said he is a library user and his male lover is a librarian. These bigoted discriminatory letters will make me think twice before asking a librarian for help, knowing how closed-minded they can be. Reading those hateful remarks makes me angry and sad, thinking of all the youths who still have reason to fear asking for help from their local librarians. These letters were written in 1992, 22 years after we began our work to get positive gay materials into libraries and out to users and to end discrimination in the library field. Had we failed? I think not. There's a tide of positive change in attitudes that can't be halted. Our gay librarians organization is strong. Most important, our cause is right and just. No matter how many laws our opponents pass against us, no matter how many sermons they preach, no matter if they succeed in stripping libraries of materials giving our point of view, we won't go away and we won't disappear and we won't shut up. I believe, ultimately, most librarians 
will honor their professional commitment to serve all their patrons fairly and equitably. A personal note, in my 48 years as a gay rights activist, I mingled with people from many fields, many disciplines. I've enjoyed being with librarians the most. At their conferences, at least, you hear wide-ranging conversation beyond the technical matters of the profession. Is it because librarians know how to enjoy the life of the mind? Thank you, librarians, for enabling me to have so much fun and satisfaction in my own career. That was uh, Barbara Gittings. Uh, you're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G is our website. This is our tribute to Barbara Giddings, uh, early gay liberation uh, pioneer um, in America who sought to get books into libraries and educate Americans about the reality of gay lives. We're going to uh, look more at his, at her life uh, by reading an excerpt of her interview with uh, Jonathan Katz. Uh, in, um, in Jonathan Katz's uh, pioneering work, Gay American History, Lesbians and Gay Men in the USA, which was a documentary book, uh, so-called documentary book of documents uh, and interviews uh, that came out uh, several decades ago. Um, in 1958, Barbara Giddings uh, founded the, the, the talked about the uh, founded the New York Daughters of Belitis. Uh, uh, talked about the 1958. Um, she talked about the 1958 uh, founding of the Daughters of Belitis in New York, um, when uh, she had been uh, on a vacation in '56. I went to San Francisco and sat in on meetings of the year-old uh, daughter Belitis in San Francisco. And in 1958, became active in the founding of the East Coast chapter of DOB in New York and was elected as first president, uh, serving three years until 1961. And she, uh, Barbara edited the lesbian periodical The Ladder from 63 until the summer of 66. And then... Uh, joined the Mattachine Society in fighting the U.S. government's policy of firing homosexuals in its employ. Uh, in 1971, Barbara appeared on television with six other lesbians to present a forceful gay liberation viewpoint on the nationally syndicated David Susskind show. In an interview uh, that was taped on July 19, 1974, Barbara uh, spoke with Jonathan Katz about her development as a lesbian and the early history of the DOB. Um, so Katz asked her about the impact of first realizing in college that she's a lesbian. Putting that label on myself was a big step forward, says Barbara, even though I had a negative attitude about that label. I went to a psychiatrist in Chicago and told her about myself, and she said, Yes, you are a homosexual. And then she offered to cure me. I didn't have the money for that, so I didn't go back to her. Some people say, you shouldn't have given, she shouldn't have given you a label. I disagree. 
I think she did me a, uh, enormous, an enormous service because once I said, yes, that's me, that's what I am, I was able to work with it. I'd been living throughout my high school years and first few months of college with this hazy feeling. I don't quite know what's happening to me. It was a fog of confusion. Now I have something clear-cut I could come to grips with. So I stopped going to classes. I started going to the library to find out what it meant to be homosexual. I was very aggressive about finding what literature on homosexuality, uh, finding that literature on homosexuality. I went through the stacks. I went through the reference books. I went to the medical dictionaries. I went to ordinary dictionaries. I went to encyclopedias. I went to textbooks. The chapters on abnormal psychology sections called sexual deviations and sexual perversions. That kind of labeling affects your image before you get to the material, but it didn't bother me so much, too much because I was so anxious to read about myself. The over in, more in, overall impression I got was I must be the kind of person they're talking about because I'm homosexual and they're describing homosexuals, but I didn't recognize much of myself in this. And so uh, she goes on to talk about what really changed my image and gave me a much more positive feeling about homosexuality, even though I, thought, I still thought it was a misfortune that needed to be changed, were the novels. In some of the so-called scientific materials I read, there were references to fiction titles, and I began to seek these out. As I remember, The Well of Loneliness was the first I latched on to. It was widely mentioned in the documentary literature and was also available more available than others. That really hit home, because even though there were differences between myself and the heroine, heroine, I still identify with her emotional state and her feelings. The book has an unhappy ending, of course. It was distressing to me, I suppose, that at the end, of, uh, at the end she deliberately sends her w away her lover in order to allow the younger woman the chance of normal happiness. It seemed to me that she had sacrificed needlessly. So uh, she was living at home. I was living at home at the time. I'd flunked out of college and gone back home in disgrace. I had taken a clerical job and I was spending my spare time at the public library and going to second-hand bookstores. My father came into my room one day and found a copy of The Well of Loneliness and wrote me a letter about it. We were living in the same house and he couldn't bring himself to talk to me about it. He sent me a letter <laughs> telling me that this was an immoral book, that I had no business owning it, and that I should dispose of it not by giving it away where some of us could be, would be contaminated by it. I had to dispose of it by burning. Well, I simply hid it better and told him that I had disposed of it. This incident reinforced my sense of taboo about the subject matter. Then I began to find other books. I remember specifically Extraordinary Woman by Compton McKinsey, Dusty Answer by Rosamond Lehman, Lehman, and an earlier novel by Radcliffe Hall, which was not explicitly lesbian, but which did have a covert lesbian theme and was strongly feminist, although I didn't see it as such at the time, a book called The Unlit Lamp. I searched these out. I had made some effort to get them and in turn led to other titles, and they in turn led me to other titles. The fiction made a great, a big difference because here were human beings that were fleshed out in a dimension 
that simply wasn't available in the scientific literature materials, which were always examining us from a clinical point of view, in which we were diseased case histories. I appreciated the novels because even though most of them had unhappy endings, they did picture us as diverse people who had our happiness. So that's an excerpt from uh, Jonathan Katz's Gay American History, uh, where uh, Barbara Giddings um, talked about uh, how she got involved in identifying herself as a lesbian, as a homosexual. And she was talking to Jonathan Katz, the esteemed author of that work, um, which came out uh, several decades ago. Uh, today we are remembering, um, paying tribute to Barbara Giddings, an uh, early gay liberation pioneer who um, died on Sunday at the age, uh, last week, not this past, not yesterday, but the week before, at the age of 75. Um, we will end this uh, show with some songs that were, some gay liberation songs and lesbian liberation songs that were um, current at the time in the 60s and 70s. Stay tuned. You're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Um, this is Dan Sang signing off with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Our website is kuci.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G, where you can find archived editions of previous shows of subversity, including this one. Stay tuned. This is KUCI. 88.9 FM in Irvine.